0: And the interesting thing about words is that they they kind of keep us. They can keep us in a third-person, a third-person um, third way of approaching or seeing or, or knowing the world. Uh, we take someone's words in, we try to understand them, we try to categorize them, and then we map that onto the world. And it's often the content of, of those words and the picture that we arrive at is. It's very different than a first-person experience. Does that make sense? <coughs> I could have gotten up and talked to you about snow and what snow on Octo- October 4th would be like and um, actually sticking on the roads and you know, no one's got studs on and all that other stuff. Uh, and you would have just been like, oh yeah, I get it. I know bend. I know snow. I know studs. I, I've got a picture. It's, it's radically different than your experience of this morning. Does that make sense? Um, What we're talking about this morning, as much as any message, I think, in the New Testament, and I don't say that on my own authority, I think we'll see it in a little bit, but as much as any message in the New Testament is one that that cannot be understood purely in third-person language. Conversation about what we're talking about Um, about God in this kind of a way, in this kind of a capacity, never really gets at the heart of what it's really about. Um, Just like the snow, in this kind of a context, we can talk about God, the greatness of God, our need and our desire to love God. We can talk about all those kinds of things, uh, the greatness, the size, the grandeur, the holiness of God. But like the snow this morning, if it doesn't hit you, if you don't experience it, um, nothing, nothing happens right. It, it doesn't, doesn't lead to the right states uh, of mind and soul, and and it doesn't give you the felt quality that only comes from an experience of God that just hits you and makes you realize how great our God is. Um, there's so much dialogue going on. I mean, I, in my own life, the people I talk to, there's so much dialogue interfaith dialogue, atheist, new atheist, and theist dialogue. And, and out of all of it, we just get kind of locked up with all this conversation, and, and we really don't know how to really grab hold of, of God and just be affected. Um, Jonathan Edwards called it the religious affections, how it just affects you and those emotions and those feelings. And, and it just, all that noise and all that talk just kind of can clutter it. And I think what we need at Antioch, what we need this morning, what we need on an ongoing basis, what this town needs um, is for God to show up and for us all to just be awed by him. Um, That it would just push us back, that it would silence the debates and the conversations and the, the words and that experience of God would just impact us and everything else then kind of falls from that. That's, that's what we really need. Um, I'm to try and get at that a little bit through Scripture this morning, but the thing we really need is the presence of God. Okay? Um, so I would like to ask, I've never done this, and I don't know why Brandon took the mic away. <laughs> um, or is it somewhere that I don't know? But like the handheld mic. But I'm going to just ask someone that actually really this morning is passionate about seeing God um, in this church, in the other churches in this town, in Bend, um, someone who's just radically passionate about, about seeing God just show up, uh, would just open us in prayer this morning. So maybe someone, does anyone have the microphone? It's it's over here on this side. So I'm just going to ask somebody to, to open us in prayer if you'd be so bold. Can you yell it? You think? Because I, I don't I, I don't want to throw it. You have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 12. I'm just going to read through this passage, and I'm going to make a couple comments as we go. Um, and it'll be on the screen for you as well, but this is John chapter 12. The, the very first words are very telling. Incredibly telling. Right out of the gate in chapter 12, it says, six days before the Passover. And this is the Passover time in Jerusalem when when Jesus gets killed, when Jesus um, gets crucified. So, this is the last week of Jesus' life, his earthly ministry, earthly life. And arguably, one of the most significant weeks in in all of history. it's hard to really grab hold of that one, right? I mean, how do you digest that? But we're dealing with, over from here through the end of John, um, a very profound season um, in all of history. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has had raised from the dead. We see in a parallel passage in Matthew that they're at this leper's house in Bethany, named Simon. Um, presumably somebody that Jesus had healed. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now, it's an interesting thing, because if you remember from earlier, um, there's kind of a death warrant out on Jesus. Like, there's a hit on Jesus. Like, if you know where Jesus is at, you're supposed to tell the religious authorities, because they want to come kill him. And... It talks later about how they want to get Lazarus now because Lazarus, in some sense, is a part of people coming over to Jesus. And so this is a highly charged thing. They're, they're getting close to kind of Jerusalem. This is Jewish territory. And they're at this dinner where people are going to come. And, and there's a hit out on Jesus. I mean, this isn't just Sunday afternoon football when you go home today. Okay, this is, these are people that are passionate about each other, in tight relationship with each other, coming together in almost in a, in a public sense, um, and, and running a, a risk in doing so, and they're having this meal. And Martha served, and, and Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, um, that perfume was probably about two and a half times the amount, value-wise, of what Judas sold Jesus, betrayed Jesus for. Um, like expensive stuff, you know, the kind of money that people would have looked at and felt like, gee, um, there's a lot I could think of that we could do with that money. Do you know anyone that's got like a big chunk of money sitting around and you immediately start thinking about, I know how I'd spend that money. I do that with my dad's money all the time. He did not really have any, but like, you know, I, I know how I'd spend that money. Um, it's a lot of money. And she, she comes and she, she breaks this thing, opens this thing, pours it on Jesus, gets on her knees and wipes his feet with her hair um, and it's this amazing kind of a scene, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, if we were like a mega church, this is where we would like, have, like be breaking bottles of Eternity all around and like wafting it into the air so that you guys could really get what's going on here. But I mean, think of that! Like if you took a bottle of perfume, a whole bottle and opened it up, just the whole room is going to be filled with that fragrance. This is the dominant thing going on for everybody at that time in that house. It's a crazy thing. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who is later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John really kind of advances Judas as kind of the the, the guy that got the most frustrated. Um, in Matthew, we see that it wasn't just Judas that felt this way. Kind of many of the disciples felt this way. Judas was probably the, the one with the biggest scowl or whatever. But, but there's a lot of people going, Wow, <laughs> this is... This is, you don't see this every day. This is pretty extravagant. This is pretty crazy. Um, how do I feel about that? What's going on? Judas has his own agenda, John tells us. Not only is he trying to wrestle with it or figure it out, but he dislikes it because he has his own agenda. He likes having control of the money so that, one, he can help himself to it, and, two, so that he's in a power position. Judas's character is all wrong, yet he hides behind justice. We'll get to that in a, a minute. Leave her, leave her alone. Leave her alone. You don't say leave somebody alone unless you sense that somebody is being attacked or picked on or, or ridiculed or whatever, right? You're caught up in... in the main subject where the verb is going on of kind of the sentence, this is front and center, of what's happening. And you don't stop that to rebuke or to tell somebody, leave somebody alone, unless there's something happening, there's an action going on. So what Judas is doing is, is causing a stir, and it's changing the focus of the event to himself. And, he, and, and it causes Jesus just to speak up and just say, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. That's a really amazing thing because Jesus' disciples all the way up until the last day don't really get that he's going to be dying. I mean, he's kind of telling them he's going to be dying, but they're still trying to keep it from happening and all this other stuff. Mary, <coughs> with that unique gift that she had, looked at Jesus, saw the weight on his shoulders, saw it in his eyes, um, read the times, knew what was going on, and she came and did this, and Jesus is saying, look, she knew this thing really was intended as kind of um, anointing me for my burial, for my death, for what's coming. Um, what she did is really marvelous, and it shows an intimacy that you really don't know anything about. This is a fascinating, fascinating passage. And I want to kind of step back from it just a little bit. And in uh, Bible interpretation, it's, uh, it's called hermeneutics. Textual interpretation is called hermeneutics. From the word comes from the Greek god Hermes, which was the messenger god. So the word hermeneutics is how do you interpret a, a message, a written message. And when, when I was in school, the big thing was what's called a hermeneutic bridge, so, you take an ancient text and you try and reduce it down to a timeless principle, and then out of that timeless principle, you can come over here and make application. So, uh, for example,. Um, when God says, I don't desire the blood of, of sacrifices, um, how do we interpret that today when we don't have animal sacrifices? Well, God was really saying, look, I don't desire like you bringing your stuff here and thinking that's really great. Like, I desire an intangible element underneath that. Like I, I really want your heart. Um, and so we don't go well. I mean, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not sacrificing bulls and goats. No, it's it's not just about animals. The timeless principle here is about um, the heart behind the actions, the the motive behind actions. So the timeless principle is something that cuts across culture, and then you're able to apply that and say, you know what? When I go to church, or when I stand and, and sing songs, it's not about the action. It's not about the motions. Um, even serving the poor, or helping someone that's needy, it's not necessarily about that action that God gets super excited, it's the heart behind the action. Does that make sense? So there's this hermeneutic bridge, and it's about the principle, and then the principle goes into application. Now, if we're lazy or if we're sloppy with this kind of a passage, it's historical narrative, it doesn't just tell us what it means. We have to kind of look at that and say, what's really going on? If we're lazy with it, I think what happens is, is we come out of it, and the principle is worship, like Mary. And what that's going to mean is the action. Um, it should be, man, it should be extravagant. Like, you should be on your knees, and, and you should... Break bottles of perfume around, and and uh, you should sing louder than everybody. And it's it's about the demonstration of of what's going on. It's the action. It's the verb. It's be like Mary. Okay, what did Mary do? Let me go do something like that. And it's and and we get that a lot in the church, don't we? Those kinds of like oh um, shoot. Okay, I gotta be like so and so, and so um how do I do that? And buck up, Ken and And hit it hard and and I got to really go the extra like nine yards so that it's it's big (laughs) over the top and 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 that's not really what's going on here is it Um, I mean seriously like if 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 that was what was going on here like I don't I don't have any perfume I don't wear I don't wear cologne I don't have any hair can't can't do that Um, it's not about me loving Jesus like Mary loved Jesus. I'm a boy. She's a girl. You know, she has hair. I don't have hair. She had perfume. I don't have perfume. She had Jesus like in person right there. I don't. I have Jesus here through the Holy Spirit. I I have God that I can talk to and, and I have other Christians and Jesus says in some way that as I like serve you, it's like serving him. If you go visit those in prison, if you go help the needy and feed people that don't have food, and if you do this kind of stuff, it's as if you're loving me. That's how I want you to, to do it once I'm gone, Jesus said, right? So there's a difference between Mary and, and me. And I think a lot of men struggle with this. We get in churches and, and we're kind of pushed and goaded and, and like we don't know what to do with that. The, the real feely stuff, or the, the comparison game, or the, you know, what it, I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't cry. You know, like, can I, you know, does that mean I'm a second-rate Christian? Does that mean I fall behind the people that are super emotional? It's like, no, not at all. What's going on here, the timeless principle, is about that heart thing. It's about Mary's devotion and and a singularity of her focus, the the fact that she has an undivided heart. And it's about a type of worship that's not an action. It's a heart issue. And so this is where the principle's at if we're going to understand really how this applies to us and and what we should be challenged with in this passage. It's simply... um, is God God in your life? Is your obsession in life God? Is the thing that dominates your thinking and your appetites and your hunger and your desires and your conversations with other people and the plans for your life and your dreams and, and your hopes and all of that, is it all wrapped up in, and you can sum it up by God. I'm obsessed with God. My focus is on God. I want God. I love God. Or is God, like, less than that? You love a lot of things. Oh, and yeah, I love God, too. I mean, I heard a joke once. I don't even know if it applies. It just sounds like a funny thing to say. But, um, you know, you can, you can kiss your sister, but who'd want to? You know? Um... It shows that there's really distinctions here in categories of love. And we get fuzzy with that, don't we? Um, You know, you can love anything. You can love dog poop. If you're a business, you have a business, you own a business, and it's all about dog poop cleanup, then you love dog poop. Because that dog, it makes you money. And your hopes and your dreams are magnified by this. So you love it. Okay, that's how Judas loved Jesus. Judas loved Jesus. But the kind of love he had was, was utilitarian. It was about how Jesus fit into the dominant things in his life that he was devoted to. Judas loved Jesus, but Jesus was not Judas's God. He did not worship Jesus. There's a lot of people in America, I mean, I've struggled with this at times. There's the ability to love God or love Jesus or even love the Holy Spirit, and it's not because they're God. It's because... I'm devoted to something that might require them or that they might be able to help me out with. Mary comes in, pushes her way past the people that were lackadaisical, that were just kind of um, numb to the realities of what was going on. And she comes laser-focused, throws herself at Jesus' feet, and in her devotion, she worships Jesus and devote her, it's front and center, it's elevated. This is the focus. Um, it's amazing how in America we've um, we've, we've taken the, the God thing and the religion thing and we've really uh, made it casual. We've really made it casual. Do you know that the way the, the Jews and the early Christians would have prayed, looks a lot more like um, how Muslims pray if you, if you see Muslims in their in their prayer time or in their mosque on their knees on a, on a carpet with their face down prostrated on the ground this was the kind of prayer that, that you would have seen in the New Testament it church kind of uh, lore or, or legend is it that, that James, Jesus' uh, brother, who led the early church in Jerusalem, that his knees were so callous from prayer um, that, that you could actually see how callous those, those were. I, I don't know whether his knees were callous or not. The point is that that legend shows you the kind of prayer that was going on was, was the ancient Near East way of prostrating yourself on the ground of worshipping. And... Um, we've lost that, haven't we? I mean, a lot of us might have it, or we might have it at different times, but we typically think, how do we get comfortable and then pray? We We don't throw ourselves down or bury our face in the corner of the couch as if we're crying out to the God of the universe because that's where we're at emotionally. We take it casually because that's what we're supposed to do as a matter of routine. Um... We, we can get to where we're sitting there and we can hold hands and we can pray about Aunt Mildred's elbow and and um the exam coming up this Friday and I watch I was listening to um K Love with my wife and they were like we pray for all our K Love listeners daily and I'm you know my wife's like, Really? <laughs> like that's great. You know like it's such a blanket I mean that's just that's how we begin to talk about prayer. Like, um, God, just all of those k listeners. I mean, wh- and what is that kind of communication? Um, and here comes Mary, and she blitzes through, and she throws herself at Jesus' feet, and, and she shows us devotion. She shows us a picture of devotion, and here's what's going on. Um... You ever heard of love languages? You know, there's like five of them. Um, like hugs and touch and stuff, words of affirmation, acts of service, gift giving, quality time, is that five? Is that all of them? I think it's kind of a cool thing. You're like, oh yeah, people do have their preferences of like how they like to be loved or whatever. Love, as a, as a, as a generic thing, expresses itself in different vehicles, right? Okay. Devotion to God shows up in different ways. We could go on and on drawing boxes, but this devotion filters itself out into different ways, right? If you really care about God, what do we say? You know, you're going you're gonna to have an attitude towards the poor or the imprisoned or the oppressed, or you're going you're gonna to prioritize community and the habit of being together with other believers, and, and you're going to... Um, Give your money to God. Um, you're going to care about money as if it's God's money, and you're going to do that. And you're, there's different ways in which which devotion is channeled. You're going to encourage one another. You're going to serve and have a ministry. Why? Because God designed you not to just take up space. Like your life is meaningful. You're able to contribute. It's, devotion is going to channel its way out. Okay. Now here's the really interesting thing. I, Quote from Francis Schaeffer. Francis says, uh, Schaeffer says, The problem with Christians in this country in the last 80 years or so is that they have seen things in bits and pieces instead of totals. I think it applies here. What can happen after time is this devotion funnels itself down through different things, different love languages, different actions, different, different looks. And pretty soon we get to seeing this, and we lose sight of what the whole point was in the first place. It's the husband, like, taking out the trash and coming back in and, you know, grumbling at his wife. You know, take that. I served you. You ungrateful whatever, you know, like flowers. Okay, I'm good for a year. You know, get off my back. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, pretty soon it becomes about the action and the pieces rather than the, the ethereal heart thing that was driving it, right? I, uh, people ask me sometimes what my love language is. And it's interesting. I... I just say the same thing every time. I'm, I'm on the intuitive side if you're into Myers Briggs or personality types or whatever. And I tell them, I don't care. I, I kind of just discern whether it's genuine or not. Like, I, I don't have one preferred style. I just want it to be authentic. I, I want it to be real. That's what matters to me. So I see past the thing, and if it's real, if the person really cares for me, I'll know, and then I'll be like, sweet. Um, it's easy with criticism to discern, like if it's real. It's always real. (laughs) Um, With people being like, hey, Ken, I I like you, or hey, Ken, way to go, or hey, Ken, I like the message, half the time it's just bogus. Um, So you're like, you just read the person, like, do they really mean it? You know? Criticism's a lot easier, right? But this is kind of the idea going on here. Now, um, I want to show you a clip from a a documentary um, called The Corporation, and it's it's a little clip about the industrial age. And Kip's not here, so we've got to do a little quick fast forward, and then I want you to just see this kind of historical clip about the industrial age. And in 1712, when an Englishman named Thomas Newcomen invented a steam driven pump to pump water out of the English coal mine so the English coal miners could get it more cold to mine rather than hauling buckets of water out of the mine. It was all about Productivity, more coal per man hour. That was the dawn of the industrial age, and then it became more steel per man hour, more textiles per man hour, more automobiles per man hour, and today it's more chips per man hour, more gizmos per man hour. The system is basically the same, producing more sophisticated products today. The dominant rule. I like that clip because it just shows you this, like never-ending, compulsive drive for production that's characteristic of the industrial age. It's bottom-line efficiency. It's how do we get more, 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 more? Um, Do you know that the church is a corporation? I mean, it is. It doesn't make it evil, but it, it lends itself to the same kind of frenetic obsession as as secular corporations. And what happens is the doing, the acting, the giving, the whatever it is, we can begin to look at these and say, um, how do we maximize those? How do we get more of those? How do we increase productivity? How do we turn you more and more into a part of the machine that's just going and going? And, And how do we just... Like more good stuff and more religion and more, more, more. And guys like me, me, we, we can feed into this. And what happens is, is we can begin to lose sight of these things were all supposed to be representative or the fruit of the thing that really mattered. The first two commandments, that God's up here, that's where we're devoted. The, the, the great commandment that Jesus gave, that says, look, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you do. It, it just matters that you love God. It, whatever the language is, if you really, really, really are obsessed with God, it dominates your thinking you love him. Not like a sister, but like um, this God that you're enamored with, it that, that you're in awe of. If you love God, that's what really matters. Everything else will come naturally from that. But when we kind of lose sight of this and we begin to focus on the doing, it just, just goes and goes. I was talking to um, a, a national, global, actually, nonprofit that I'm connected with, and their, their executive board is kind of doing rebranding, and they were talking about this slogan, um, Be Church. They want to kind of roll out and, and, and be church and i 've heard be church and be the church a lot in the last number of years and, and I think the heart behind it is we 've got to get back to being authentic about how we act with communities and with things like justice and all that. but the danger there is that we 're always focused on on doing we naturally focus on doing we, we come here and we think that worship is primarily about action that our value as Christians, our value to the corporation, our value inherent is all about action and all about doing. And then pretty soon we lose sight of the being. <clears throat> that be the church shouldn't be as much about doing as it's first being impacted by God, first person experience, like the snowstorm, that we're just impacted that God drops, God descends, that we see that and we just jump back in awe that love, His love, His grace is really amazing. We can sing it, but do we feel it? Do we experience it? Do we, do we know what it, 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 the quality is, the felt quality of amazing grace? And the thing about it is, is if we really encounter God, the actions just flow. We don't have to plan them. We don't have to build to-do lists. We don't have to manufacture or, or rev them up or nudge each other or try and guilt one another or say it's your duty to do things. That stuff just takes care of itself if we, if we get the heart of this. Now, the interesting thing, I'll touch on it briefly and then um, we'll move on, but Judas' response is pretty typical. Judas is like, hey, we should have given this to the poor. He uses one of these actions against it. The, the reason Christians fight more than any of my drunk fraternity brothers used to fight is because if they disagree, they just didn't care. You're an idiot, you're an idiot, whatever, we don't care. Like When Christians disagree, we use justice as a weapon. Like It's not that I have a different opinion or that I disagree with you. It's that you are wrong. The God of the universe is in judgment on you, and I am right. Like, our, our differences of opinion turn into righteous crusades. This money should be spent on the poor. Why? Because God cares about the poor. And then we go on a righteous crusade. And Christians, we never, like, do battle softly. Like, we do battle with righteous indignation. Um, And we use justice against one another. It's crazy. We use actions against one another. I mean, I I see this all the time. I get caught up in this. At the end of the day, we miss the heart. It just says, look, we don't have to argue about those things. When When people are just enamored with God, he'll take care of the rest. And when they're not, all these actions are just competitive agendas that people have. Judas had an agenda. It was one of those categories under devotion, but he was using it for himself. And we hide our own personal agendas under this idea of righteous indignation. Um, I don't have time to explain it, but boy, we could do a lot of work here. If you think of something you're frustrated with in church, or frustrated with, with other Christians... It's, it's something that's your hot button, but you I guarantee you if we really strip it away, um, instead of being on a righteous crusade, you could just step back and say, you know what, they're okay people, and they mean well, and they're just like me, we're just trying to do our best, and God loves them like he loves me, and he'll handle it. But we get these things that don't go the way we want them to, Then we take biblical authority, we we elevate it, and then we have to go on crusade. Why? Because it's a righteous thing. And you can be righteous without being right. Righteous is a a state of mind, a religious category. Right, being right with God, is, is a state of the heart. And you can feel righteous, be righteous, be on a righteous crusade, but not be right. This is what happened to Judas. He was feeling righteous with justice on his side, but he was wrong. Um, Matthew kind of closes this this little story out. Jesus says this at the end. In in the same story in Matthew, it's chapter 26 if you want to know, but it says this, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And it concludes, verse 13, I tell you the truth wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wherever in, in the whole world for the history of humanity that Jesus' gospel is taught, he says, I want what she's done to go with it. It's the story of Jesus dying for our sins and Mary anointing Jesus. That's the package There's four Gospels that in the early church kind of traveled together everywhere. In some sense, the Gospel should have been packaged this way. Here's the Gospel of Jesus Christ and what Mary did for Jesus. That's what Jesus, that was his last will and testament. This is how I want it to be told. This is how I want it to be known. You know, the the Protestant tradition, in in some sense, we lose by not having this category of saints. Saints. You know, the idea of saints. And we actually hate it as Protestants because we're, we're capitalists and we're individualists and we don't like anybody above us. And we don't like to have to submit to, to things or people or look up to them. We want to maximize it ourselves. I, I don't want to look at that hero. I want to be the hero, right? I mean, we just, we do that. We, we dress up as little kids and we never really lose it. It's like someone else is doing good. Oh, that's cool. to do doing that. But I wish it was me doing that. Um... The Catholic tradition has this idea of saints. These are people set apart under God in a certain, like, special way. And you kind of are able to look up to them as role models or heroes. And and Jesus, at least in this passage, seems to do that to somebody. I'm setting her apart, and I'm elevating her to where I want that story, I want what she did to be seen, to be recognized, to be admired, to to look up to it, that she's like a a Christian hero or heroine, and, and you respect that. And in seeing that and in reflecting on it, you begin to understand that it's about devotion. It's not about the love language. It's about the love. It's not about the action of worship. It's about the heart. And I want you to see what she did, not so that you can emulate it perfectly, but so that you can be impacted and transformed or convicted by the devotion she had. Because she got it. She got the Ten Commandments. She got the Great Commandments. She got love. And all the love languages are nothing if you don't have this thing at the center. And all actions, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, are nothing if you don't really have love. And love is where it's at, and it's not just utility. It's not just, hey, this works for what my agenda is. It's that this is your agenda. It consumes you. Jesus says, I want, I, I want, she's a saint. I want my people to see this. I want them to be impacted by this. I don't, I don't want them to be like Judas. Um, I want them to be like Mary. So this morning, it's like, how do we apply this? I mean, how do we, how do we go out? How do we be transformed or impacted or, or, or spoken to with it? And, and I think it's just simply this. Words fail at giving first person experiential knowledge. This sermon has failed. Okay? Where it can succeed is when you sit down with Scripture, or when you sit down to pray, or when you go out and you meditate and reflect, and you just cry out to God and say, God, I need to experience you. It says, draw near to you and you will draw near to me. I'm, I'm asking for that. I'm asking for you to come close. I'm asking for you to be real right here, front and center, to give your, a piece of yourself to me. So Just open my eyes that I might see it. Because if I'm not e- impacted, if I don't get to experience it, if I don't get to see you, if I don't get to in some way touch you, not literally, but, but just there you are. I will never have that first person um, thing that has to happen. I need that, God. I mean, there's skeptics all around me. My own heart is just filled with temptation and unbelief and, and here and there and distractions and the desire to build up pride and do these actions because it's got religious value. God, I've got all this junk and I just need to see you so that that would just all kind of fade away, melt away, and I would be affected, in love, enamored, standing in awe. Sermons fail, God, but your presence, your presence, your holiness, your grandeur will not fail. It will, it will transform. So you have to take this somewhere. The sermon by itself can do nothing but God has promised that if you go get, and, and, and not the silly kinds of prayers, but the falling on your face, the true worship, the true prayer, the true prostration before God just saying, I want, I want you and nothing else, that that is effectual. That that will change you. That's what God is looking for. And you've got to go there. I've got to go there. We've got to go there. I've got to help my kids learn how to go there. And then it becomes what it was supposed to be. Father, we, we just commit to you our lives, uh, messy and broken as they are. We want righteous actions to come out of us, but not because of righteousness. We want it to come because we are with you, because we know you, and because we're in love with you. And in all of that, it just bears a certain fruit. It, it, it affects us in a certain way. And that our actions would be pure and not hypocritical. That this world would see something alive, Something desirable, something good, something that you've created, and not just an institution. Not just more and more efficiency, not just more and more action. So, God, take us as we are, transform us, mold us, show us a piece of yourself. Um, let the other stuff melt away. We commit ourselves to you, Christ.